never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to Neff Inspiration, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefane. Today, I've got Tarek Chaudhry with me. Tarek is a man who has gone through an amazing transformation. This man was out there. He was a former Fortune 100 executive. He is a man who has had more than his fair share of trauma, something that I can very much relate to. And uh, like it or lump it, the trauma is is changing the way we behave. And most of us don't get it right the first time around. And many of us not the second and third time. So <laughs> transformations are constantly coming uh, when you are uh, when you have lived lives like Tarek and mine. And I can't wait to hear more about his transformation and his message to the world, because that message needs to be shouted from the rooftops. But I won't take that away from you, Tarek. Welcome to my show. Thank you so much for having me today, Stefan. It's an honor to be here. Mm -hmm. Thank you for giving me a chance to share my experience, strength, and hope, and ultimately, you know, and inspire your audience to take action, to affirm what they're already doing, to free and liberate their minds from a negative and fearful way of thinking into a purposeful acting and faithful way of life. Mm -hmm. And the fear is so prevalent in our society, more so now in 2023 than, than maybe before, or certainly in the last 50 years or so. We had relatively good times, but seemingly fear has crept in uh, from a number of, of directions into our daily life. Um, having said that, I mean, that is not where your story starts. Where was your start? Where was the beginning for you? The beginning for me didn't begin with me. You know, my my family's journey, my family's story, you know, their experiences, their sins, their traumas, their wants, their needs, their desires, their mistakes. That's that's where my story starts. And interestingly enough, when I was uh, in my mother's womb, she experienced one of the greatest traumas of her life. And that shock within her was carried over into me. And I've done quite a bit of uh, spiritual work in my life. And in one of my um, craniosacral sessions, the practitioner had indicated that I carried 22 generations of trauma, mm -hmm. 13 from my father and nine from my mother. Both my parents' families are families who came from war and genocide and suffering generations worth my mother comes from armenia and her family fled the armenian genocide so a couple of her siblings were actually killed in the genocide my father was born in the area of kashmir when he was born it was a territory of india fighting for its independence into pakistan and to this day it's still a an area of war and conflict and so my mother and father were born into generations of war and they carried that trauma. And unfortunately, they, they weren't able to, to break that cycle. And having turned from my old self, which was a bitter, resentful, full of self-pity, full of fear, individual, I now appreciate the gift that they gave me. 
because I was the one that was chosen to break that generational trauma, to break that curse, to do the painful work that it took to not carry that and pass that down to generations to come. So that's really, you know, that's where my story starts. It did not begin with me. There will be many people out there who think what a bullshit. Um, and unfortunately, we are living in a society which is sort of a little bit blinkered. For those of you who are thinking, oh, come on, yeah, generations, you don't get that handed down. Maybe the behavior uh, is transmitted, but certainly not the trauma. There's a beautiful study out there where rats were kept in cages, which were partially electrified. And the rats were living their normal life, and they had uh, a, a, a smell wafted through of cherry blossom or cherries in themselves. And every time that cherry flavor came into the cage, they got electrified from below. They had a painful stimulus. They had trauma. And soon the rats learned, now nah, that's not very good when the cherry, uh, cherry flavor comes. Not good. Pain comes. Then rats did what they did. And they had children, and the children were again put into those cages. Now, the children had not been exposed to that experiment. But the moment the researchers flooded the cage with this cherry flavor, they jumped away from the, uh, the, the place where the pain would come from. They had not previously experienced that but they had been handed down from the previous generation that cherry flavor is not a good thing in your life. These are studies. There's a stuff where we begin to realize the impact that our previous generations, their trauma has on us today. And whilst we live or have lived in, in, a, in a time of relative peace, of relative uh, maybe prosperity, uh, compared with the many generations before us, um, we still have got the remnants uh, of this trauma sitting in us. So therefore, let's get that out of the way. Those of you who were a bit hesitant to believe what, what Tarek is saying, I 100% uh, uh, subscribe to the same to the same thoughts and the same the same facts as you had. My goodness. Yeah. My if if my if me today were talking to me five years ago, and me five years ago heard what me today had to say, I'd say you're full of shit. <laughs> exactly. You're you're <laughs> you're one of those. You're one of those. Yeah, three five, <laughs> five five years ago, I was a hypnotized sheep, just like everybody else. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Whilst these are strong words, I actually agree. Um, we have been unfortunately manipulated and and uh, socially engineered um, by a multi-trillion dollar industry or industries um, with regards to nutrition, beliefs, and etc. But that's a that's a different story. So I think going back to to the generational trauma that so many of us um, have got deep inside their cells or wherever it is kept in, in us. Um, now that we accepted that it is there, how the hell can we deal with that? How the hell can you deal with the fear and the terror that a woman would have experienced when she knows that her whole family was supposed to be killed in the Armenian genocide in 1915? 
how the hell can you deal with that now? While the experience wasn't mine, the emotional stimulus to the experience was mine. And so any type of situation where it was fight, flight, or freeze for me, it was a paralysis of fear, and it was always freeze. Mm. And that's what was embedded into my DNA. And to your point earlier, it's scientifically proven that generational trauma exists. Mm. It's not one study on rats. Mm. It's multiple studies. The scientific community has 100% confirmed the existence Mm. and validity of generational trauma. It's no longer questionable. Anyone who doubts it can go and do their research and instantly see like, oh, all right, Western science has confirmed this. But it look, it was it was nothing but suffering. And it it all boiled down finally to an admittance. You know, I, I don't my mom. My mom did a lot of the things that I did to try to avoid a lot of the same things that she felt that I felt, you know, uh, she went out and became wildly successful as a, as an immigrant in, in the United States. And mm. I went out and I became wildly successful because I didn't want to deal with what was on the inside, just like she didn't want to deal with, with what was on the inside. My mom became a matriarch. She became the pillar of our family. She became the center of everything. And she served everyone around her because it didn't require her to serve herself and provide herself self-love. Well, what did I do? I went, and I got a career in leadership. And I went and I served everybody else. So I didn't have to deal with anything that was inside of myself. And what did my mom do when my father passed away and she was retired and her children were out of the house and she no longer had an identity and the purpose that she served? She withered away. And she lost her purpose. And that beauty inside of her, it it dwindled. That light started to dim more and more and more. And my mother now she just she doesn't want to leave her house she she never managed anything that was inside of her she always tried to change everything on the outside and when everything on the outside was gone there was nothing to connect to on the inside and the exact same thing happened to me just much earlier in life you know the identity i created in society that is how i i got my self-worth that's how i got my identity that's how i got my acceptance that's how I got my love. It was all who was I to this, to society? What value do I bring to you? And and the moment I lost that, I crumbled. And you know, I had gotten myself sober when I was 29 years old. And I didn't have a 12-step program. I didn't have God in my life. I I I had a massive inferiority complex. And I was driven by shame guilt self-hate hate of everyone around me grief and uncontrollable anger and rage and i used all those things and harnessed them to go from one addiction to another and so i didn't i didn't pick up a drink or touch a line of cocaine for 3010 days but boy all those negative emotions that were charging me forward in life they grew stronger and stronger and stronger no matter what i did on the outside And then on day 3011, those negative emotions didn't work anymore. And I relapsed. And I burned my life to the ground in a matter of days. But I'm uh, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So I want to let you redirect the conversation. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's beautiful to hear because um, yeah, for those of you who are watching the video, you saw me nodding and my eyes sort of drifting a bit to the side because you essentially you used words I could have absolutely said myself. Um, the last five minutes could have come out of my mouth without much alteration. Um, I was a workaholic long before I became an alcoholic. Um, I was running away and the external validation was so important for me. And it took me a very, very long time. What was your relationship with alcohol when you were younger? Did your parents drink or did was alcohol part of your chemistry at home? So as a child, I would have said no, but as a grown man doing a lot of deep work and and trying to understand my my family and my parents it's not confirmed but it really makes sense that my father was an alcoholic i remember when i was eight years old it was about the one and only time i was eight or nine years old it's like the one and only time i went somewhere alone with him mm -hmm. and we went to a place called victor's pizzeria i'll never forget it because it's such a profound experience he ordered a cheese pizza and a pitcher of beer. And he looked at me and he just said, this is the last time you're ever going to see me drink. And he drank the pitcher of beer. And from what I can recall, that's the last time I ever saw my father drink. Now, prior to that experience, there was a substantial amount of physical violence in my home. After that experience, it went from physical violence to more emotional abuse and but there was a change in him and i would go and i'd ask my uncles and aunts and stuff and they used to they'd laugh at me and this is recently they'd laugh and say that wasn't tea in your dad's teacup uh, and bro. um and so i came to the realization because both my brother and i are addicts and so where do we get it from my mother on the other hand i've never seen my mother drunk in my life she drinks. She drinks more now than she she did when she was younger. And when I say she drinks more now, she might have like two beers a week huh. or a margarita if she goes out to dinner. Huh. I, I've never seen my mother drunk. And on my mother's side, there is quite a bit of alcoholism. Um, my first cousin has died from the disease. And there's, there's definitely alcoholism on my mother's side of the family. So, yeah. but my brother is not my mother's son. So for me and my brother to both have alcoholism and addiction issues, yeah. you would think that there might be some correlation from yeah. my father. So drinking was, I mean, every family gathering, everyone was drinking, you know, but directly my, my mom and my dad, again, they were the ones who drank the least. Well, my dad stopped completely as far as I knew. Um, but everyone else drank a lot more. Hmm. And I do believe he stopped when I was eight years old because he everything about him changed. And now as a man who's got been sober, relapsed, got sober again, you know, I can relate a lot more to my father. I understand him so much more, so hmm. much more. There's a huge part of him inside of me. Hmm. Uh, from a medical point of view, there are about 50 different genes that uh, that work at times to facilitate you becoming an alcoholic. Uh, let's put it like that. 
having said that, whilst you might be genetically set up to have a higher dopamine rush in relation to the alcohol uh, compared with maybe others, um, it also means that ultimately you are probably put in scenarios where you've seen either the dark side of alcohol in others or in yourself. And you it's probably more likely that you will have come across uh, people who have uh, changed, who have uh, become role models in the way that they actually said no to drink uh, one way or the other or to, to other addictions. So therefore, it cuts both ways. Only because you've got the genes doesn't mean to say you will become a raving alcoholic. Okay, so that's good that we actually distinguish that. Um, but I think I strongly believe that that the, the trauma that you have ex that your generations before you have experienced, and then of course the trauma that you experience uh, in your younger years um, is huge in creating a scenario where suddenly a drink makes you feel so much more relaxed. Were you an easygoing child? Where, how were you at school? Oh, my childhood was, um, my childhood was, was difficult, very difficult. So I didn't fit in anywhere, not even within my own family. And so my father was a strict Muslim and my mother a devout Catholic and they lived under the same roof and they both stayed faithful to the religions. And I went to Catholic school for 14 years. Mm. I was an altar boy. So I'd be at school on Friday morning. I'd be at mass. I'd walk out of the church. My father would be there in the car, pick me up and take me to the mosque for Jummah prayer. <laughs> so I, I would literally leave, you know, so that in itself made my childhood miserable because one parent wasn't happy with who I was because I didn't follow in their faith. Wow. And, and even in my, even on my father's side of the family, I'm the only one who had a white, uh, my mom's not, she's Armenian, but you know, she's very fair skinned. And so I'm the only one who had a quote unquote white mother. And so all my cousins on my father's side of the family would call me half breed. And I didn't speak their language. I didn't speak the native language. So they'd all talk about me and make fun of me. I'd ask my older niece, what, you know, what are they saying? And she said, they're calling you half breed. And then at Catholic school, um, you know, it was uh, a prim predominantly Caucasian environment and it was rough. And then, you know, there was a lot of abuse in the home and I was always paralyzed with fear. So, you know, Predators smell fear and oftentimes predators themselves are wounded. Mm. So I was bullied and beaten up at school quite often. And so there was no safety for me. I didn't feel safe at home. I didn't feel safe at school. I didn't feel safe anywhere. I didn't feel seen anywhere and I didn't feel accepted anywhere. And, um, but I do want to say kind of with some of your opening statements, my parents loved me the best they knew how. That's it. And and it boils down to forgiveness. I held on to the pain of my childhood for four decades. And the only way to break free from that is forgiveness. And forgiveness comes from compassion and empathy. And to study my father, to understand my father, to try to put myself in his shoes to understand his pain, to understand his suffering. That's where forgiveness comes from. 
He never left. He could have left. He never did. Mm. Exactly. You know, he he did his best. Was his best what I needed? No, but he wasn't capable of giving me what I needed. He gave me what he knew how to give me. And he made the effort. You know, and that my relationship with my father was the most profound relationship of my entire life. Everything I did about when I became a man, all I was was a little boy trying to earn my father's respect. That was my whole identity as a, as a man. I, I'm this wounded little boy whose father didn't accept him, whose father didn't love him as he was. And that's all I ever wanted. And so I wanted to go out and make him proud. And it was a love-hate relationship. I loved him so much that I hated him for not returning the amount of love that I had for him. At least that's what my experience was as a child. And, you know, my father died in my arms when I was 28 years old. And, you know, I got sober at 29. And all I wanted to do was prove him wrong. You know, the voice in my head that was instilled in me as a child was from my father's voice. And it was, you're good for nothing, bum. You're worthless. No one will ever love you. You're a bum. You're a bum. You're a bum. You're a piece of shit. You're nothing. No one will ever love you. What the hell? What's wrong with you? Why are you so weak? You know? In his mind, that's what fathers did to build their sons. You know, my my father's father wasn't around. He had like four families. And he would go from family to family and just show up whenever he wanted to show up and just discipline my father because my father's mother would be like, he's very hard to deal with or whatever. And mm. he just beat the shit out of my dad and then bounce. So the one time I saw my father cry was when his father died. And I'm sure my father just wanted to make his father proud of him. And, you know, he we can't blame people for the environments that they grew up in and the things that they were exposed to, you know? So I love my dad with all my heart, man. I have so much forgiveness inside and the relationship I have with him today is a beautiful relationship. It's, I, you know, I longed for that to be the relationship I had while he was physically here on this earth, but that didn't happen. But you know, as a lot of us say in sobriety, accept the things I cannot change and change the things I can. I can't change the past, but I, I get to choose the relationship I have with a man who's not here anymore. Wow. Damn I don't Johnny. even remember the question you asked me, Stefan. I don't even remember the question you asked me. I just started no. talking. And that is the important bit because that's what men don't do. Um, we are bad in actually talking honest about that about these feelings that and, and few of us have the privilege of actually experiencing the trauma and transforming in response so many of the words that you have you have said spoke very very deeply to me and i'm sure to many many other men out there and to to constantly have to prove yourself to constantly be the best to constantly live up to to measures that you could not even that superman could not even achieve in a week yet you expect yourself to do that in a day man i mean that's and that's where then the cocaine comes in that's where then i mean alcohol actually did the trick for me alcohol gave me it always gives me a second wind 
Um, so first comes relaxation and then comes bing, I'm awake. Cool. Yes, let's do another 12 hours of whatever. Regardless how it did, the quality of my work was certainly not very good. <laughs> One of the, who was that? And, and a very famous author um, quoted that he did uh, the best writing when he was drunk and the best editing when he was sober. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> my point. So I think, how how did you keep going? I mean, here you were, you chose to to define yourself with your work, go out there, become successful. But what, what were daddy's little helpers? Um, what helped you to become that man? Or were you able to, to draw the energy from deep within yourself? It was a combination of so many different things. It was... A combination of emotion and part systems and that unseen hurt unnurtured little boy he was the part of me that was the part that wanted to be loved so badly then there was the angry teenager who resented his father so much but it was deeply rooted in the fact that he didn't, I didn't think he loved me and I loved him so much. So it made me hate him. And that's where the anger came in. And I was playing football and they used to call me target in football because I would pick somebody, make them my target. And my goal is to make them leave on a stretcher. And that was the only time I felt like I could release the anger that was inside of me. I became so afraid of the anger that lived inside of me because I know my father's anger, the things I witnessed, the things I went through, no human being ever should. And so to be the recipient of uncontrollable rage and anger, the thought of inflicting that upon someone else was too terrifying to me. So I battled that anger so much. And that anger turned into self-hatred because I didn't inflict it on anyone else. I turned it inward and I learned to hate myself so much that my capacity for punishment and self-mutilation and negative self-talk created such an inferiority complex that it actually spawned a massive malformed ego complex. And so nothing fulfilled, nothing ever good enough. I'm not good enough. No matter what I do, I'll never be good enough. So I have to keep doing more and more and more and more. Now, take all of that with a man whose greatest love, his father, died in my arms when I was 28 on November 19th, 2010. My father died in my arms. He took his last breath. My brother, at the same time that my father was dying, suffered a massive brain aneurysm. And so my brother was in the neuro ICU and my dad was in the ICU. And my brother made it. But it was it was at the point Stefan when in my father's last week on this earth every spoon of morphine I gave him I would drink the rest of the bottle. And that's 
that's that's where it got to in my life. And after he died, I spiraled into oblivion because all hope was lost. The greatest love that I never had died. My father died. And the greatest hope of my life was to mend the relationship with my father and to to for you know this little boy to for daddy to say, I'm proud of you, son. And that never happened. I never heard my father say he was proud of me. That's all I ever wanted in my life. I was so obsessed with that. And I spiraled for about six months. And then on July 15th, 2011, I had so many different drugs in my pockets and I was so drunk and I didn't know what was what. So I just mixed it all together and just threw it into a pile and I snorted it. And next thing I know, I woke up with my clothes shredded to pieces, metal handcuffs strapped to a hospital bed. And my mother was looking at me. The first thing I saw when I woke up was handcuffs and then my mother. And in that moment, the power of the self-disgust inside of me overpowered the inferiority inside of me. And I hated myself so much. A new part was created. And that was just pain. The ability to endure unimaginable pain and to harness it. And that's how I became successful. I got myself sober. I didn't go to AA. I didn't go to a 12-step program. I didn't go to rehab. I, I didn't seek help. I didn't do anything because I was going to prove to myself and the world that I'm not weak. <laughs> oh, right? That's what we as men, that's what we as men are taught, right? You yeah. ask for help, you're weak. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? What's your worth? You can't, you can't pick up your pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You can't go do this, that. What are you worth? And so when I realized that there was enough strength or, or, or just raw will inside of me to conquer my addiction, which was a nine year battle, I knew I, I knew I had a drug and alcohol problem when I was 21 years old and I didn't stop till I was 29. So to know you have a problem when you're 21 back then, before there was all this fentanyl and all, all that stuff, this was just alcohol and cocaine. Mm. but. Within six months of not having had a drink or a drug, it was, if well, if I can conquer this, what else can I conquer? Hmm. I just, it's kind of like the Hulk, man. I don't, I don't know if you've seen some of the Marvel stuff where, hmm. where the Hulk learns that as long as he always stays angry, hmm. he can control the monster. And so I'd learned how to always stay angry, no matter what on the inside, on the inside of me, I was so angry at myself and I dedicated myself to becoming successful, to prove my father wrong, to proving everyone wrong and proving myself wrong. Cause ultimately the voice inside of me was, he's right. You're a good for nothing piece of shit. You're a fucking bum. No one will ever love you. And so I want to prove myself. I want to prove everyone else wrong. And within two years of getting sober, I became 
the youngest executive, to my knowledge, I was the only executive. Well, I was the only manager ever hired into Oracle without a college degree. And I believe I became the youngest executive in Oracle and the only executive without a college degree. <laughs> and I became a director when I was 31 years old. And then I became a vice president when I was 34 years old. And then I became an area vice president when I was 35, 36 years old. And then I became a group vice president by the time I was 37 years old. And um, I did all of that through hating myself so much and wanting to earn people's love and respect. I basically wanted to buy acceptance from people. I did a lot of good in my life when I was sober, man. Everyone I loved, I took care of. I brought people from other industries and I said, let me change your life for you. You can live a better life and I can give it to you. Just trust me. And they did because they're like, man, Tark got his life together. You know, it was the last person we thought would ever get his life together. You know, we thought Tark was, we thought Tark was going to be dead in a ditch by the time he was 25 years old. You know, these, the people, it's the people that said that those were the people who ended up following me into my career path and me giving them a career path. I brought my best friend in. I brought guys I served in the army win. I, I brought anyone I saw talent in who deserved a better life. I wanted to be the person to give it to them. My identity became somebody who could give people what I always wanted, but never had. I wanted to give people the ability to believe in themselves. I wanted to give people someone who believed in them. Nobody ever believed in me. At least that's what I thought. Maybe they did, but that's, that was my experience, you know? And, um, I, I used all the wrong emotions to stay sober, man. And to achieve all my success. So what do you think happened when, when I, all that stopped working where, where the pain just kept building and building and building and the pressures I added to my life were more and more and more. And there was no self care in my life. There was no self love in my life. There was no self worth in my life. Hmm. How long do you think a human being can go on like that before there's consequences? So when I relapsed after eight and a half years, which that in itself was my worst imaginable nightmare, when I relapsed, I destroyed my life and I didn't just destroy my life. I destroyed the lives of people. I served people. I loved people who trusted me with their livelihoods, my business, like every, I burned everything to the ground and uh, all that self hate amplified by a hundred and I had nowhere else to turn, but back to what? the alcohol and the drugs. And um, I'll close with this. So, you know, I, I don't keep hijacking the conversation, but myself will run riot. Gave me something most people will never have. And that was that identity on the outside. You know, that was self-will. But then that self-will also destroyed everything it gave me. My my curse was my gift. My gift was my curse. <laughs> As well said. And so, but that was that was the greatest gift that had ever been given to me. 
because it was the first time in my life I was ever humbled. Hmm. And the first time in my life I ever said, I need help and I deserve help. It was the first act of love. Hmm. I know that now. I didn't know that then. But it was the first act of love I ever gave myself was surrender. Hmm. And I dropped to my knees one night when I came home from jail. And I said, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your name is. Cause I hated God for what happened in my life. Hmm. You know, any, the only God I had learned about was the God of religion. And, you know, I hated religion because of what, what it did to my family. So I said, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your name is, but I beg you to save my life. I dropped to my knees for the first time in my life. I had enough humility and enough I had had enough of the pain and I finally admitted I need help. And by saying I need help, I mean, that's an act of self-love mm. truly. Mm. And um, that was the first, you want to talk about, you know, to, to little, get a little pun on your name. You want to talk about the steps to sobriety. <laughs> mm. Asking for help was the greatest first step I ever took of my entire life. Mm. So true. Where did the help then come from? I mean, in your in your, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Tarek is pointing up to the ceiling, and with, I don't think he, with that he means the the next floor up. Um, yeah. This is the top floor, brother. I'm on the fourth floor of my house, so anywhere up from here is, you know, you know who exactly. that is. Exactly. Oh goodness. Um, but how did it manifest itself? Because here you were against God uh, with probably very good reasons to do so. Um, and when we say God, I mean, it's interesting. You had two religions, so to speak. There was, on the one hand, Allah. Uh, on the other hand, that kind of Christian God. Um, both of them are both systems that uh, both religions have done incredible harm to societies, to people throughout the world. Uh, How did it continue? Not the religions. It's I disagree with you. It's not the religions that did harm. It's the religious leaders okay. that Love manipulate it. the values of the religion. Love it. Love it. Absolutely accepted. 100%. Okay. Thank you for the correction. 100% taken. Um, but, you know, what was the message? What was the... What, what led you to change, to change to such a trauma in such a dramatic fashion that uh, you are now, there's a very different man sitting here in front of me today than was there kneeling on on the floor. What happened? You, you, I'm getting goosebumps. To, <laughs> you know, I, I truly, man, I, I'm going to be as raw and real with you as possible because it's it's my truth. So when I relapsed, I relapsed in Germany at Oktoberfest on a guy's trip. And, and the first night I had like eight beers and four shots and I felt nothing. And so I was like, Oh, I got this. And by the next day I was off to the races looking for cocaine, ended up with a bunch of, we'll just say characters. because I gotta be careful what I say. And we'll do a bunch of characters in Europe. I left all my friends And I didn't even come home. I stayed in Europe by myself. And I went on a complete bender. Now, remember, I had been sober for 3,010 days. I had built a life beyond my wildest dreams. And by the time I came home, I was like, oh, my God, like, 
what have I done? Well, two weeks after that, I went on a business trip to San Francisco and I woke up once again, handcuffed to a hospital bed. And in that moment, it was the most triggering traumatic event of my entire life because the first time that happened changed the course of the rest of my life forever. And never in a million years did I ever think that would happen again. It was as if I had been asleep the whole time and I relived the same experience. And so, you know, each of these times, and and let me preface this, each of these times that happened, I had gone into an alcohol and substance induced psychosis. That's how I would wake up chained to a, a hospital bed. Well, I came home, I quit drinking again for three weeks and I started drinking again. And um, on in January of 2019, I went into my third substance-induced psychosis. And this time, again, I woke up chained to a hospital bed. Except this time, there's about 12 police officers in the room with me. And it's interesting because every time I've woken up, the first words out of my mouth are, please tell me I didn't hurt anybody. And, um, well, this time, I was outside of my house completely naked. I thought I was dreaming. I didn't know I was awake. And um, I, uh, it was described to me that I fought 12 police officers naked in my sleep. Well, I wasn't sleeping. I thought I was asleep. And um, they had to tase me several times and it was, it was bad. And I was in a lot of trouble. And um, ultimately, they just decided by looking at me that they thought I was a drug dealer. So they wanted me to set somebody up. And I said, no, I'm not a drug dealer. I just relapsed after eight and a half years of sobriety. I'm a pretty decent person when I'm not drinking. Hmm. And uh, long story short, I said, no. So they said, well, if you don't do what we tell you, we're going to ruin your life. And hmm. I said, go ahead and do it. Cause I'm not going to ruin someone else's cause you're trying to ruin mine. And, uh, I remember the detective looked at me and he said, do you own any weapons? And I said, yeah, I'm a registered gun owner. And he said, if I was you, you're going to want to get rid of them because tomorrow you might want to use them on yourself. I didn't really know what he meant by that, but uh, I went to jail and I came home after my, my best friend came and bailed me out. And that's when I dropped to my knees, Stefan. The moment I walked into my door, that's when I dropped to my knees and I literally dropped to my knees and I threw my hands up and I screamed and I cried. And I said, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your name is, but I beg you to save my life. So after several more hours of crying and looking at my children in the eyes and knowing what I had done, I was sitting on my couch and it was just a screensaver. And the time was going from corner to corner and it said 10, 26 PM. So something inside of me said, Google Bible 10, 26. So I go- I Googled Bible 1026. <laughs> okay. And M- Matthew 1026 is what popped up on Google. And I read it and it said, do not be afraid. There is nothing to fear. There is nothing hidden that will not be made known. There is nothing concealed that will not come to light. 
but do not be afraid of the ones who can break the mind and body here for I am with you. What I whisper proclaim from the roof. What I tell you in the dark shout into the light. Do not be afraid. I didn't really know what the fuck that meant. Mm. Pardon my language, Mm. but it stuck with me. It stuck with me. And you know, I wake up the next morning and I'm like, what is going to happen to my life? I have all of these felonies that I've been charged with and all of these misdemeanors that I've been charged with. They're telling me that I can't see my children anymore. Like, what am I going to do? Like, what if somebody finds out? And then I said, I got a text message from a friend and it said, are you okay? And this something went through me like, oh, do they know? How could they know? Oh my God, how could they know anything? And uh, I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh my God, you don't know. And I said, no, what? And he said, dude, it's viral. Everybody knows. Everyone knows. Your fuck, your mugshot is all over the news, dude. Oh, shit. It's viral on social media. There's literally memes about it already. Oh my God. And in that moment, in that moment, for a lightning bolt of a second, I was going to go get a gun and kill myself. Mm. I remembered what the sheriff, the detective said to me. And then I remembered Matthew 10, 26. There is nothing concealed that will not be made known. There is nothing hidden that will not come to light. But do not be afraid, for I am with you. And in that moment, when my biggest humiliation in life, the thing I wanted to hide more than anything, was made known to everyone in my life. Mm. I felt the power and presence of love of God. It was undeniable to me. Mm. There was no way that that was a coincidence, that that message saved my life, that that police officer said, you're going to want to kill yourself. I wanted to kill myself for a lightning bolt of a second. And then I remember what God spoke to me the night before when I asked him to save my life. And that saved my life. But even then, Stefan, I didn't value it enough. I took it for granted. So I was like, oh, I'm going to start praying and like wake up in the morning. Thank you, God. I'll pray before I eat. And like, that's it. I'm good. You know, I didn't listen to the part that said, what I whisper to you, shout. What I tell you in the dark, proclaim it in the light. And that was, I saved your life because I need you to go save other lives with what I've told you. Hmm. I'm telling you to tell people what I told you. Hmm. But to me, it was like, well, I'm, I'm not going to go out and tell people that God spoke to me. I don't want people to judge me and think I'm a crazy person. Well, when I was 90 days sober at that time, it was Easter Sunday. On 90 days sober on Easter Sunday. And I kept thinking about that Bible verse. 
And to granted, I had not picked up a Bible since then. So it's just that one Bible verse. I never bothered to actually go and read a Bible this whole time. And uh, I was like, you know what? I had not said anything to anyone. I, seclu- I I just became recluse for that 90 days. I'd never responded to anything about the social media, the articles, the mugshot. I was silent. And so I said, you know what? Let me go do what God said. Let me share my story. Let me share my truth. And so I put it all out there. And then the next day I got a text message. And it's, it was from a buddy I hadn't seen or spoken to in 10 years. And he said, you saved my life. I said, what are you talking about? He said, last night I was on Facebook and I just taken the rest of my Percocet and I had my revolver in my hand and I was waiting for the Percocet to kick in so I could kill myself. And I was reading your post and right when I got to the part about Matthew 10, 26, I looked at my phone and it was 10, 26. <laughs> so time and time and time again i kept being guided to something that i still kept trying to refuse over and over and over and you know in this profound way god is being revealed to me and god is showing his plan for me and god is showing his will for me but i was still too stubborn too egotistical too ungrateful to listen and so I went and I relapsed a bunch more times and I ruined my life a bunch more times. Stefan, I got off on, I was, I was acquitted of every single charge. By a miracle, hmm. a different judge showed up. And then by another miracle, the prosecution made a massive mistake and filed a deal in the wrong court. Mistake coincidence, whatever you want to call it, they were divine interventions. And I walked away unscathed. And that wasn't enough for me. You know, I was, I was, I I can do this. It's me, my power, my self-will. I can do this again. Look what I did with my life before. Look at the man I became. Look at all I accomplished. Look what I'm capable of. I was humbled for one second when I dropped my knees. And then I was so egotistical, I thought I was more powerful than God. Because I depended on me to do it once again. And I burned my life to the ground. I don't know how many times, man. You know, I lost a fortune when I relapsed. In a year and a half, I made it all back. Lost it again. <laughs> and, and then it got to the point where I, I relapsed again. And this time... The only thing in life left that mattered to me, my sons, Hmm. I fucked up so bad that my children were taken from me, rightfully so. And the moment I lost my children and the only identity I had left in the world that mattered was a father, um, I wanted to die again. And this time I dropped to my knees once more. And I have a beautiful, massive painting of Jesus. And I dropped to my knees in front of that painting and I said, I give up. I give up. Please take my life. Just kill me. I don't want to kill myself. I don't want my kids to grow up knowing that their dad ended their life. I just, I want to die. God, I want to die. Please just end my life. 
and I begged and I cried and I was just, I'm, I'm a horrible man. I'm, I'm consumed by the devil. I, I can't come back from this. I'm just, I'm just, I just want to die. God, just take my life. I beg you. And God answered once again. And he, he took my life for sure. He didn't <laughs> take it away from me. He took it under his wing. You know, he, he took my life under his command. I asked him to take my life and he did. And so finally I went to a rehab where they introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous and there was a chapel there. And I decided to go into that chapel and I felt a presence in that chapel. And then I decided to do what I did that first time and just randomly open up the Bible and see what happens and see what spokes to me. And I started to do that a few times a day. And I started to go to AA meetings and I started to purposefully read the Bible and I started to pursue a real relationship with God. I started to really think about what the principles of the of a 12-step program mean. And this time I was just willing to lose everything, man, That to get, to get everything I didn't have. I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about my identity. I didn't care about my career. I had already lost my children. There was no need for me to physically be where I live. And so I just dedicated my life to therapy of every imaginable kind. Alcoholics Anonymous, step work. Hmm. I lived in the woods with my dog in a shack for nine months in Connecticut. I just did deep therapeutic work. I read the Bible three to four hours a day. I connected with God. I connected with nature. And I learned to love myself for the first time in my life. I learned to love solitude. Because to be alone is to be uncomfortable with yourself. To be in solitude is to be so in love with yourself that your solitude is you and your relationship with your higher power. And being in that most loving relationship, to be in love with God, to be in love with yourself, to be enough, to not need anyone, anything to fulfill you. And that's when I realized the void in my heart, the void in my life was the void that only one thing could ever fill. And I wasn't money, it wasn't status, it wasn't power, it wasn't woman, it wasn't drugs, it wasn't anything. It was God. Only God could fill the God-sized void in my soul. And that's where all of my massive, massive transformation came by learning to be in love with myself. Literally waking up in the morning and say, I love you. Look in the mirror. I love you. Wow. Right. I, mean, I do affirmations, you know, because it's funny, man. I would, I, from the day my babies were born, both my sons have autism. And from the day they were born, I've done affirmations with my children. And then I was sitting there in therapy one time, and my therapist looked at me and she was like, When are you going to say those things to yourself, Tark? And I was like, She was like, When is your father voice? Your voice is a father. When is that going to become your voice for you? And then she even told me, she goes, why don't you make your understanding of God the father that you are to your kids? What you're willing to do for your kids. Why don't you define your own relationship with God? And so I did that. And, you know, I just, I learned to be enough for me, to be enough for God, to know that God loves me exactly as I am for all my flaws, for all my mistakes, that I'm still worthy of love. 
and to finally believe that I'm still worthy of love after never believing that I was. Well, it was, it was a breakthrough moment for me. And when you learn to love yourself, you can learn to love everybody else. When you learn to forgive yourself, you can learn to forgive everybody else. And forgiveness is the key to freedom. Forgiveness is the key to relieving yourself from the bondage that you've shackled yourself into. I was no longer drinking my own poison. The resentments were gone. I wasn't poisoning myself with the hatred I had for other people anymore. And when you, the people you love the most are the people you hate the most. It's a horrible place to be. Very true. Man. When was that breakthrough? Because you would have learned so much by actually speaking such a different language now to yourself. You would have grown and you would have gone onto a trajectory that you had no no way of knowing where that would lead you. Um, when did that become time-wise? That was about a year ago. Well, maybe a little over a year ago. Mm. And you're right. I had no idea where my life was going to go. I mm. gave it to God. You know, I, um, it was, uh, it was a struggle to not go back to that identity because that identity was quote unquote safe. Mm. Of course. I dedicated 15 years of my life to becoming this inspirational leader, a comeback story. And, you know, somebody important to all these other people. And uh, that was also a source of great anxiety, stress, frustration, and and pressure in my life. Mm. And, you know, I, I have I have a lot of bills. I have expensive bills. I created this life that was a life of bondage because all these material things cost money. Mm. And uh, and my children's security and future, I had squandered it all away. I could have retired. If I didn't relapse, I had enough money to live a very good life for the rest mm. of my life, mm. but it was all gone. And so I was like, well, how do I make it back? I kept thinking to myself, well, I got to make the money. I got to make the money. And then there was that part of me that's growing that says, no, man, you don't, you don't. God will provide. Why are you acting in fear? Why are you thinking in fear? Act in faith. Stop thinking in fear, act in faith. And it was difficult to do that. But every day I struggled, I continued to lean on God. Mm. And I put God at the center of everything in my life. And God became my disruption. And when I say my disruption, the moment I would have negative self-talk, the moment I would have like a trigger or a reaction or my anxiety, the moment those things happened, my disruption was give it to God. Mm. And so every morning for God knows how many years I wake up with an anxiety attack. Every morning I wake up with heart palpitations, a tight chest, sweating. Mm. And the first thing I would do then is wake up, get on my knees, start talking to God. Brush my teeth. I'm talking to God. Do my morning business. I'm talking to God. And next thing I know, 30 minutes after I wake up, my anxiety is gone. Mm. 
because I disrupt it. I don't stay inside of myself. I go outside of myself and I give it to God. And, you know, I think the act of one person actually dropping to their knees, the physical act of dropping to your knees is an act of humility, an act of asking for help, an act of surrender. Isn't it? And so anytime I have any form of self-doubt or self-will that I feel is coming in or any type of ego, mm. I disrupt it and I drop to my knees. I don't care if I'm in public. I don't care if I'm in the middle of a restaurant. Mm -hmm. My relationship with God is more important than anyone thinks of me. And it's so important that it's what I turn to in, in all my needs. And if I'm in a crowded restaurant and bar and people are drinking and having a great time and I get on my knees and I start praying, I don't care what you think of me. <laughs> you know, I no. do it anyways, because it's mm -hmm. I, that's how strong it makes me feel. That's how much faith I have. And it took practice, man. It's a daily practice. Mm. You know, no matter anything you do in life that you stop doing, you're not going to be as good at it. But if you keep doing it every day of your life, you get better mm. and better and better. Healing isn't like a, hey, I'm going to go you know, do a one month long retreat and exactly. I'm going to walk out this changed person and it's going to stick for the rest of my life. No, no. we've created a foundation. We've created a breakthrough moment. That's, that's a breakthrough. That's not breaking free. <laughs> breaking free is implementing the daily discipline and practice of the things that you've learned. All right. Beautiful. Did Kobe Bryant become Kobe Bryant? Because he, he acted like another person or he acted like Kobe Bryant. Practice harder than anyone. Pay more attention than anyone. Make it the center of your life. This is the thing I'm committed to. The only other thing I'm committed to is God. Hmm. Kobe Bryant, the greatest of all time, knew he wasn't as great as God. So he had the humility of a God-loving, God-fearing man. And he knew what it took to to execute the greatness that god gave him he had to work harder smarter longer than everybody else around him what michael jordan michael jordan was cut from his sophomore basketball team in high school yeah, I know. and that's what made him michael jordan <laughs> just like what you asked me my inferiority is what made me previously successful you know so for me, brother, it's it's a daily practice. And that's why the first thing I do when I wake up is I connect to God. I talk to God all day long. Mm. I don't talk to myself anymore, right? I, I have 41 years of research says talking to myself is, is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> so I, I talk to God all day long, you know? That's a very, very wise, uh, wise decision you made there. I know. Oh, bloody hell. Wow. What a story, Tarek. What a story. Uh, I, it is, I'm blown away by your transformation. Um, I'm taking courage that it took you multiple goes. And I think it's so beautiful to say, I've, I've, um, there are still people out there, the majority of alcoholics or addicts, who think that a relapse is an absolute failure, an absolute bad thing. And I actually disagree. Uh, a relapse is a time for you to stop and think, am I still on the right trajectory? And the chances are, no, you're not. Otherwise, you wouldn't have relapsed. Um, so there's more for you to learn, uh, different ways for you to grow. And I think um, 
I embrace a relapse, maybe not the magnitude of relapses that you have gone through. <laughs> the psychosis, I mean, wow, that is not pretty. But five, five. <laughs> five there's a whole there's a whole other story in my psychosis, brother. There's a whole other story about my psychosis that is so profound, man. Hmm. You know, I, I uh there is always a component in every one of those like because I had to go back and really try to reconnect to those moments. And there was a moment in every single one that was a common denominator. It was always me speaking on a stage, talking about a message of true love. Was that what you what you what you your recollection was of those? That's where moments? I was. That's where I was in those moments. That was the reality that I was living in. And now think about what I'm doing. In mm. this moment, I might not be on a physical stage, but I am on a stage. Oh, you are. And I'm, and I'm talking about true love. Mm. And so were those psychosises or were those visions that were given to me of what's to come? Okay. I and when God says, don't, when God says, don't have fear, I'm here. Don't worry about what they think. Don't worry about it. Trust me. Don't worry about them. Put your love in me, not in them. Put your faith in me, not in them. And I have a plan for you. Love me and execute my plan. Wow. And now here I am. And you, that didn't register for me until seven weeks ago when I decided to go down this journey, brother. Seven weeks ago, I was still considering going back to corporate America. But I had yet another profound spiritual experience with God because all I did, I didn't go back, but I just kept saying, God, show me your will. Mm. Let thy will be done, not mine. Let thy will be done, not mine. Give me the strength, the courage, the, the purview to understand your will. Let me serve you. Let me not serve myself. And he showed me a path and not only showed me the path, brother, he quite literally paid for the path. <laughs> wow. I've been, I've been in a, in almost a decade long battle with the department of veteran affairs and they've been denying me financial compensation for almost 10 years. And the day after I made the commitment to, to go down this path in my life to serve God through public speaking and sharing my story and being raw and real and not going back to corporate America and not caring about that life. The day after I made the dedication to do that, I made a large financial investment, about 30% of all the cash assets I had left. I haven't worked in a year and a half. I left that life behind. I just focused on AA and recovery. Yeah. And the day after I made that investment, something said, check the VA. I haven't heard from my lawyer or the VA in four and a half years. Yeah. And I checked the VA and all of a sudden, everything was approved. Something something said, go check your bank account. I go, I check my bank account. And more money than the average American makes in three years was deposited into my bank account overnight. <laughs> God provides when you trust. God yeah. provides when you trust. When you act in trust and live in trust. Yeah. And you go from fear-based thinking to faith-based acting. Ooh. 
the God of your understanding, the God of your creation, the God of your life, the guiding light of your life will provide. You have to let him. Oh, wow. Wow. Where do you think God will take you in the future? Oh, I already know. Um, He's already laid it all out for me. But go ahead, finish your question. No, 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 no. The question is basically, um, what I can see is that there will be a lot of people who might want to know more about you. And the question is, how will you shout the message from the rooftops? Um, whilst it is okay for, for our vis uh, listeners to try to scour restaurants for anyone who's kneeling on the floor um, and think, oh, that, that could be Tarek. Um, there might be more effect effective ways of touching base <laughs> with you. <laughs> Where can people find you? And how can people work with you um, to achieve your goals? Wonderful, wonderful question, brother. And, and I thank you for that so much. Um, again, seven weeks ago, I was not knowing where I was going with my life. My book will be out in, um, late December, early January. Mm -hmm. Uh, my website is tarikchaudhry.com and this website will be fully stood up next week. My social media, my Instagram is Tarek underscore Chaudhry. Um, and then my offers are rolling out very soon. So a big part of what my, my purpose is now is a, to, to spread God's love through whatever form God tells me to do it in. And a big part of what we're going to do that is spiritual healing. And so I've already started uh, my organization with some of the best practitioners for my own journey. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're my practitioners. I didn't go out and just get somebody with the same title. I got my healers. The healers who healed me are now my practitioners and our, our practitioners. We're, we're all partners in this. Yeah. And so we're offering varying forms of spiritual counseling, meditative counseling um, from a virtual perspective right now. So we can book anyone with any of our spiritual counselors right now on an introductory call with me and then, and perhaps with all three of us and mm -hmm. identify who's right for you, if not both. Cause I do mm -hmm. believe in the importance of having a masculine and feminine healer, mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. to relate to both sides of you, because when, when you're not activating both your masculine and your feminine, you're, you're not balanced. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a very, very important part of healing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, we are doing uh, retreats, uh, varying, mm -hmm. varying lengths of retreats with varying forms of spiritual modalities, ranging from uh, hypotropic breath work, to hypnosis, acupuncture, craniosacral therapy, mm -hmm. um, Akashic records, um, massage therapy, sound therapy, cold therapy. Oh, beautiful. Uh, so, yeah, we've got a variety of different ways. But the best way to reach me right now is uh, through my um, Instagram, Tarek underscore Chaudhry. Send me a DM. And look, I'm just I'm acting in faith. So I'm trying to move as quickly as I can to get everything out there. <laughs> um, but my uh, my main practitioner and I, when we met three years ago, you know, we built this idea together mm. and we talked about it for days and days and days. And, it, you know, God's timing is divine. And so three years later, he was ready. I was ready. He quit his job. We started working together. Mm. 
And um, yeah, man. Wow. So this has been in the works for three years. Wow. And all the modalities, it's a holistic experience, man. It's a holistic wow. healing experience. And then of course, like we talked about, it's not, you can't, do a week long retreat and then think your life's going to be changed forever without doing the work to keep changing your life every day. Exactly. So we have varying forms of ongoing virtual engagement from, you know, virtual, virtual spiritual counseling sessions to virtual life coaching sessions to virtual um, forms of, mm -hmm. of um, steps and things like that. So, but let me say this, especially for the listener on here, you know, you can pay me a ton of money and I'll change your life for sure. No problem. I will give you the greatest gift you've ever been given. Or you can give yourself a great gift, humble yourself enough, and walk into a 12-step program. <laughs> There's rooms everywhere for you, mm. all of them. You get it for free. All you got to do is humble enough to do it. Mm. Or I'll take your money. No problem. Happy to do <laughs> so. <laughs> It's up to up to you. Uh, that's fun. No, no, no. There's so much more. The 12 step program is a beautiful, beautiful uh path. Um, and guys, if you want to know more about it, which one? This one. <laughs> There's one. Yeah, my steps to sobriety. That's the old cover. Uh, the third edition is coming out soon. Um, so therefore, there are uh there are many sources there of information. Uh, there's much, much guidance there as far as, as the the ongoing work is concerned and the uh, the journey, the transformation that is waiting for you guys out there. Because it is really by connecting with a higher power by connecting mm -hmm. with an energy out there that is that is able to guide you so much better than your own ego <laughs> i think both you and i Tarek, we both have proven that again and again <laughs> so maybe we are not the best the best people but yet yet the two of us just so happened to end up a bit further down the path than many of our listeners so therefore, you know, why not get in touch with Tarek? Why not see what he has got to offer? So guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast. All these details are there. And I think it is, check things out. Um, some things might work for you straight away. Some things you might not be ready for yet, but... That doesn't mean to say that you can't start, uh, start trying, that you should not actually start experimenting. We're not just with different cocktails of, of things to drink, but how about different different paths of enlightenment? And if that, if that sounds corny to you, how about different life skills that focus on you and allow you to grow? And maybe in turn, you can ditch the self-berating, mean, angry, oh, you asshole kind of talk that we sort of self-flagellate, where we sort of give us the, the uh, we are our worst critics of. Maybe, just oh, yeah. maybe, by us going out there and actually taking little steps of action every day to, to change our relationship with ourselves. And then in turn, maybe, we can change the relationships around us. And I, I know that by doing so, you will grow. It's impossible for you not to grow, not to transform. And I encourage you guys, come come onto that road, come onto that path. Because Tarek and me, we are just a little bit further down that path. And why don't you just 
take us as, as examples and see, okay, what worked for these two numbnuts? And maybe um, it is a start for me. All of our paths are unique, but yet there are so many similarities. And I think, uh, Tarek, I'm very, very grateful that you came today onto my show. Um, there were many things where I just needed to list. I don't think I've said five words in that interview, but uh, you said it all. But you said it, you said it in such a beautiful way that made me reflect. And for that, I'm very grateful. Sometimes you need to shut up and listen. Um, and I think that is not something that we egoistical kind of people do very well so therefore maybe that is my transformation maybe that's a show of my my ability to shut up and to be humble and listen to others maybe there's still hope for me hey i i, I go for that <laughs> Tarek, you're an amazing man uh thank you so much for being a guest on my show Thank you so much, Stefan. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was a, it was a pleasure. And if I can say one last thing, please. No matter what you decide to do, when you walk out of here after listening to this or watching this, show yourself some form of love. Receive love. To give yourself love is to have the ability to receive love. Allow yourself to receive some form of love. Ask for help. Seek help. Do the right thing for yourself. Be kind to yourself. Just give yourself an act of love. And that's, that's all I have, man. Beautiful. Thank you so much, brother. Absolute pleasure. And you guys out there, look after yourself and live with passion. Bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.